Hey there, good people in crypto land. I'm Matt Lysing, and this is my podcast, Decent People. Welcome back to the conversation. Got a great guest for you today. His name is Richard Ma. He is the CEO and co-founder of QuantStamp. Uh, QuantStamp is a crypto auditing and um, smart contract sort of auditing firm that grew out of uh, Richard's experience uh, where he had uh, his money in the Dow back in 2016. The Dow was hacked and and his funds got stolen. So he came out of that experience um, wanting to help prevent that from happening in the future. But he looked around and realized that there were basically no smart contract auditing firms out there uh, working in Ethereum. And so he decided to start his own. Um, before that, he, uh, he had been a quantitative uh, programmer and uh, algorithmic trader. Uh, he was at Tower Research, which is a huge high-frequency trading firm. Um, and we talked about that and about just uh, some of the Flash Boys kind of stuff with Michael Lewis back in the day. And, uh, and then also we got into uh, his experience with the Chamber of Digital Commerce, which is... Uh, a lobbying firm in D.C. that's just trying to help make the case for crypto up uh, in in Congress, and uh, just had a really good uh, general conversation with Richard. Uh, so let's get to it, and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you very much. Hey, Richard, how you doing? Good. Um, hey, Matt, uh, appreciate having you having me on the show. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to talk to you today. Um, when uh, I came across you, I, 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 my eyes lit up because of your experience with the Dow hack in 2016, uh, which is one of my favorite kind of episodes in, in the crypto history that we've been uh, privy to so far. And I'm sure we're going we're gonna to get into that. But um, the, the, the short story here is that you had some of your money stolen from the Dow hack, and that kind of prompted you to create a crypto security company and auditing firm called QuantStamp. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I guess the, the origin story is that um, in 2016, so I, I had like gotten really interested in uh, Ethereum and um, you know, I, I, I'm a programmer by background. And so, you know, I got really interested in it and the first big project coming out of Ethereum was the DAO. And so at the time, um, it, it pretty much every single prominent person in the community had invested in it and were taking part really actively in the discussions. Um, and so I actually put all my ether at the time uh, into it, which was about $25,000. And um, after about three weeks, uh, the DAO um, had a really uh, public hack. Um, it was kind of a make or make, make or break decision uh, moment for the Ethereum community. Yeah. Um, so that um, was the reason why I started Constant because uh, it was created by uh, a really simple bug uh, in the DAO software. So. Yeah. And, and were you, did you actually have your money stolen? Because I know about 30% or so, I think, of the funds were stolen and then it was kind of frozen. Uh, yeah. So I, I had like, uh, you know, my funds um, uh, stolen and, um, you know, I was like, it was kind of a learning experience because when I first got into 
Ethereum, it was more like still from uh, a perspective of like being really curious. And um, the, you know, the DAO hack made me a lot more, um, you know, curious in terms of investigating exactly what's going on uh, with the smart contracts. And, you know, that, that was kind of like a formative moment for um, the security community because at the time there were, um, you know, almost no security firms. Yeah. Um, Slocket, which helped to develop the DAO, they were also a security auditing firm, uh, you know, very small one. And so, you know, it was like the security auditing firm that was also developing the software, you know, and so that, among other observations, is kind of what got me thinking about starting a security company that could pr- protect lots of people. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a nice outcome. Um, but l- let's go back a little bit before that. Um, you said you, you were always a programmer. Did did you, as a kid, was that were you into computers, or when did that um, kind of love of of programming begin? Yeah, um, I uh, so both my parents they had um, PhDs, and at a pretty young age, I got exposed to computers. So um, I, you know, I played uh, almost every single major game that came out after about you know 1993, uh, and you know I got really interested in programming because one of the first. Um, my first teacher is in high school. Um, he worked as a, a programmer at like a really big company and then decided to become a teacher. And so he was teaching um, one of the first like really good computer uh, you know, programming classes in Canada. Uh, and um, that got me really into it. Uh, and then, you know, we were basically building games uh, from the start. And at the time, I was a really big RuneScape player. Okay. Uh, and it turns out in crypto, actually, a bunch of people got into crypto from RuneScape. <laughs> so I was part of this, like, RuneScape, um, RuneScape to programming uh, to crypto uh, pipeline. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where, um, so you were growing up in Canada? Yeah, so um, when I was really young, so I was born in China, and when I was pretty young, my family moved to the UK, okay. and uh, I went to uh, grade school uh, in Canada, uh, and I you know grew up there. So, what part of Canada? Uh, Windsor. So it's uh, it's in Ontario. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah. Yeah, I've uh, got family roots up there. Uh, I just got back actually a week ago from from being up. Uh, we have a cottage on a lake. Uh, I was there for two weeks, and uh, it goes back something like five generations in my family. Uh, so it's it's a, a lovely part of the world. If you ever have a time to be there uh, in the summer, I would recommend probably <laughs> rather than the yeah. winter. Um, yeah, that's a really great summer activity. Um, yeah. yeah. So. Um, your parents both had PhDs. Uh, were, were they push? Are, were they in computer science, or they, were they pushing you in that direction, or was it just something that you kind of fell in love with through the video games that you were playing? Um, it's something I just got really interested in because uh, um, when I was pretty young, I got really into robotics and math and um, video games, and so um, you know, I was playing. 
you know, Age of Empires and Starcraft and uh, pretty much every kind of major game that uh, came out, you know, before, uh, you know, this like modern era of games. Yeah. And so I, like the moment I, I learned programming, I wanted to make my own and um, like, uh, you know, these games, they have their own economies, like civilization. It's more interesting because it's, it's very hard to like influence the real world. But uh, if you can make a game, you can make your own rules in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also kind of what attracted me to Ethereum and that like, it's very hard to have economic experiments in the real world. But, um, uh, you know, Ethereum, uh, it really allows you to kind of have this like um, global economic experiments with like a smaller group of people, um, you know, and it's sort of opted. And um, I think that's sort of for a lot of people that were playing these games, uh, it was a really easy way to get into um, Ethereum from there. So yeah, I I think that's what's fascinating about it, and and sometimes it gets missed by people. Is this is a whole new? Um, I mean, we're not there yet, but the the idea is still is this is a whole new way of structuring an internet, but it's got a native currency embedded into it. Whereas you know, in the World Wide Web, of course, there was never any kind of digital cash that was that came along with it. And um, so I've always found that fascinating. Uh, and then it also allows you to, you know, all these incentives become, you know, come into play. And there's sort of like game theory that you can apply to things. And uh, you can really, it's just w- with that native token in there and that value proposition um, in, in everything you're doing, it just, like you're saying, it just opens up this whole new avenue of, of uh, what you can create and, and what, you know, you can incent people to do. Yeah, I feel like maybe for, you know, a lot of millennials or like people my age growing up, it felt like um, you didn't have a lot of control over, uh, you know, world events or like the economy. Um, And so just like, uh, I think people were drawn to the fact that you could kind of start from scratch and you, you have like, you know, you have your own native currency. You can try to like, um, create a digital corporation like the DAO, you can try to like um, create some other mechanisms to see what else, you know, we haven't tried and see if any of those things work. Turns out most of them don't work, but um, sometimes, you know, like there's some magical moments I feel like where um, it does. And, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of, uh, um, yeah, really hard to get experience uh you know uh, in the real world so yeah absolutely so you had that great video game instructor or, or pro- programming teacher in high school did you ever successfully make a game i did um i, I made uh, actually like a game every single year oh wow and in the final year i made i tried to make something that was like uh so in the earlier versions it was you know games that you could play on a computer with two people uh, and the final year, I made uh, something you could play online, you know, with other people. Um, okay. So, yeah. Um, so, is it, Doom too yeah. young? Is that too old for you? The, did Doom you... is, uh, yeah. So, I also played Doom, but uh, 
Yeah, uh, I think that's a little bit before my time. Okay, yeah, I, yeah. I remember we, me and my college buddies would play that all the time on, on the computer with the mouse and the keyboard and stuff. <laughs> but it was uh, so much fun. Um, so once you have that video game experience, like it, it, it seems at some point you, you, you turned, you didn't really go the video game route. So what, what, what made you sort of maybe just go into programming? Because I think, uh, looking at your, at your history, you, you were pretty soon, uh, going kind of into the financial world. Yeah. So, um, in college I studied electrical and computer engineering and I was basically um, building some, um, like, uh, uh, you know, building cars, working on some robotics projects. Um, and I got exposed to uh, algorithmic trading because one of the alumni of the school, um, he was like hiring. And um, where were you going to college? Uh, so I went to Cornell. And um, this was uh, right before the financial crisis happened. So, um, you know, I, I got really interested in, uh, because the, the CEO that was hiring was like a really, really nice person. And um, it seemed like a chance to work with, you know, very smart people. So, and basically the moment I joined, was uh, pretty much when the financial crisis started. And so it was a very exciting time. And um, I was uh, basically building trading algorithms and trying to modify them on the fly while, you know, the markets were um, going crazy, you know, uh, falling, uh, you know. A lot, and then the next day something would happen. They would say, "Oh, like you know, Fannie Mae is getting rescued," and then it would go up, and then uh, you know, Lehman goes under, and the market would drop. Yeah, I remember. um, I remember being at Bloomberg and watching my Bloomberg terminal on. There was a day that Congress. uh, I think the first go around, they um, they the TARP bill, so the Troubled Asset Relief Program, where it was going to buy all the crap that people had on their books on Wall Street um, to kind of inject some liquidity. It failed the vote uh, in the, in Congress. And I remember the S&P just like fell off a cliff. And I remember watching that on my monitor in real time and just being like, holy shit, what is like, this is, this is really serious. Like, I think it was like an 800 point drop or something. It was unbelievable. Um, it was breathtaking. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I think before that time, like the last big bubble burst was the dot-com bubble. And right. so, you know, I, I lived through that, but I didn't really understand it at the time. Um, much more contained because bubble too, right? It much was more sort of, Yeah, the tech sector, there wasn't credit involved. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and so, and just I so think, yeah, yeah, just so people know, like, Quant, quantitative trading is, is like you were saying. You, you're you're basically writing programs that buy sell in in f- like millionths of a second, and uh, they yeah. they're yeah they're trading millions of times a day, and it it can just be in a very narrow range, you know, uh, or it can be like more kind of directional. So, um, but once you 
make that program like you just you set it and then it goes and like there's not a human is not necessarily involved with that while it's running because it's obviously a wave has to human capability um yeah so the the quantitative trading programs they used to run um you know when i started um something fast was in the tens of milliseconds so you know uh, one hundredth of a second Mm -hmm. And then uh, over time, something fast became like, you know, one or two milliseconds. And then um, it became measured in microseconds, you know, like a hundred microseconds. And then it became measured in like, you know, um, tens of microseconds over time. And so, oh, sorry, go ahead. What is a microsecond? It's not a millionth of a second, is it? A microsecond is uh, 10 to the minus 6. So, so millisecond, 10 to the minus 3, and, you know, one, one so thousandth of a that's millisecond. six zeros, right? So that's a millionth, yeah. I think. Yeah, and it's amazing. Yeah. Um, were you, what were you mostly trading in? Was it equities or futures? Yeah, so um, when I started, I was trading the U.S. stock market. So it was equities. Um, it was, you know, uh, all of the S&P 500. And it included some futures and also options on the stocks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then over time, uh, I ended up trading commodities like uh, gold, silver, um, you know, wheat, uh, lean hogs at the time, uh, and also fixed income. So, um, you know, I started because like it was. Uh, I think for someone that was uh, into programming and like intellectual exercise, but also um, into dramatic things or, um, you know, exciting events, it was pretty much the most uh, intellectually stimulating and exciting thing that you could do um, at the time. Uh, And with, you know, very smart, nice group of people, um, and yeah, like, yeah, over time it's, um, and then there's also the arms race element to it, which is like, you're, you know, you're always competing against, uh, some of the smartest people in the world, yeah. but you don't know who they are. You know, it's, uh, kind of pseudo anonymous, the competition. Yeah. Um, you, you were talking about, yeah, the, 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 the race to microseconds and, I noticed you were at Tower Research, which for people who don't know is like a behemoth in this quant, like high frequency trading world. There's like Tower, there's Citadel, there's Jump. Um, there's several others out there that really like to stay below the radar. But what they're doing, like I remember at Bloomberg when I was on Market Structure, colleagues of mine were writing about how uh, folks were buying land um right next to the cme um the the cm the chicago mercantile exchange has its um like it's uh i guess it's the um where all their servers are stored uh and that's where all the all the trading actually happens and they were these, these firms were trying to buy land right next to it so they could put like a tower right there to like be the shortest distance or something like something to to get the signal to the cme as fast as possible and I yeah. mean, at this point, microwave I think it was towers. microwave yeah. towers and it's like reaching kind of almost the speed of light 
you know, like yeah. stuff. And, and they were spending millions of dollars to do this. And, and it's just um, really amazing, amazing stuff. But Yeah, so they used to use fiber, which was about, I think, two-thirds the speed of light because the, the light has to bounce inside of the fiber optic cable. And then at some point, you know, they switched over to microwave networks so that it goes almost, you know, at the speed of light. And um, the kind of way I would describe like high frequency trading is that it's almost like games within games within games. And um, it's kind of interesting because you don't know what the games that other people are playing. And so there's kind of like um, there's imperfect information. Um, and so it's, it's actually like really similar to, um, you know, uh, the, the smart contract security space today and that it's also, um, you know, games within games, but also involving large sums of money. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's kind of, a very important. Um, financial infrastructure that is still, I would say, like very poorly understood. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, in the same way that it's, you know, it's hard to describe like how the arms race of practice trading goes. It, it kind of just, um, uh, you know, I think folks like Flash Boys and, and things like that did a good job. Uh, but yeah. Well, I was going to ask you, yeah, did, what did you think of Flash Boys? That, that's the Michael Lewis book about where he says that the stock market is rigged and he uh, profiles the guys um, at, uh, what, what was the name? Oh, of yeah, it? like IEX. IEX, yeah. Like, uh, Investors, yeah, yeah. So they were, IEX yeah. came up with this, their whole thing was, they're going to put a speed bump, they called it. So it's like slowing down the high frequency traders uh, on their exchange so that it's fair for everybody. But I'm, I'm curious if you, what you thought of Michael Lewis's book. I mean, Michael Lewis is like a really um, amazing writer. Uh, and um, I think he covered it as well as anybody that like didn't work, you know, inside the industry could have. Um, probably like ultimately he had to have an easy to understand conclusion. And I feel like actually there's, it's very nuanced and that there's probably no easy to understand conclusion, you know, like IEX never really, I mean, they, they ended up getting some market share, but they never truly took off. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, I would say like the financial markets and how it's trading, it's really like games within games in that like you can't just create one rule and then somehow that uh, prevents, um, uh, you know, uh, financial activity. Like yeah. Prevents, prevents arbitrage, right? Prevents uh, information asymmetry and things like that. Yeah. So know, I'm, I'm a little harsher on, on that book. I, th I thought yeah. it was absolute crap. Um, to be honest, uh, I, I, I thought he he either didn't understand what he was writing about or chose to ignore the other half of the story, which was, you know, from the side of the traders that are, you know, creating these algorithmic programs like yourself, um, which and then and he somehow thought that, uh, you know, I guess I can't remember. It's been a year since I read it, but, you know, there there is a point where a trade goes public 
uh, on like the New York Stock Exchange's, you know, server or, or it's this matching engine. And his main thing was like, these people are, are grabbing that information before other people. And it's like, well, that's because they've spent millions of dollars to do that very thing. And it's not like, that's not inside information. This is like, this is information about a trade that's already happened. It's just that these folks are getting it first and reacting to it first. And that's, that's the whole basis of high frequency trading. And at least uh, hopefully I'm not misrepresenting this or if you, if, tell me if I'm wrong, but it, he always, I thought, portrayed that as like insider trading. Like they're getting information that no one else can get and they're getting it first and, and then they're profiting from it. Whereas like, no, it's yeah. just that it's that they can react to publicly available information faster than anybody else. And that's their edge. Yeah, I mean, you're totally right. Um, yeah. Yeah, I would just say like, it's, it's kind of, it's really hard to write a great book about something like this, where it's also interesting and understandable to the average person and like, yeah, has a moral message. Um, so yeah. Yeah. You, uh, it, you don't get to go on 60 minutes if you, if you, you know, he went on there and said the stock market is rigged. I mean, that, that was it, you know, like after that, <laughs> that's it. Like that's his tagline and it's not, it doesn't matter that it's complete bullshit. It sounds great. And it sounds like a really, you know, juicy, explosive story uh, that's turns out to be completely false. So um, we, I'll just one last thing on this week. We covered it a lot at Bloomberg when I was there, because this is like right in the bread and butter of market structure. And yeah. my, my good friend, Sam Mamoudi, was the reporter on the equities market structure at the time. And he, I think he knew Michael a little bit, or, or he got a connection to someone uh, in the newsroom who knew Michael Lewis, because, you know, we wanted to get him on the phone and talk to him about the book and ask those very questions that I'm bringing up. And uh, so Lewis, Michael Lewis got on the phone with Sam and did not want to answer these kinds of questions and got mad and uh, called, he, so he, the best nickname for Sam uh, was, he called him Slippery Sam. And, uh, and he like kind of accused him of being like some dirty reporter and then he hung up on him. So <laughs> that's, a, that's just a story from the back in the day. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, now Michael Lewis is, he's writing a book about FTX. So yeah, I know it's, um, it's about to, I was really disappointed. Yeah, I thought, again. I thought the big short was amazing. You know, like the big short really, I think he, uh, I just, I don't, I don't know what happened with, uh, with flash boys, but, um, we'll have to see how, how the FTX book comes out. Um, all right, so I did notice like in the dates now, so you're at Tower, but the, right in the middle of that is the Dow. So you, like Ethereum had already caught your eye, correct? Yeah. Um, what was so, the first thing, what, like when did, when did crypto first come across your radar? Yeah, so um, actually, I, so before Tower, I worked in a, a really great, um, very small trading company uh, that was, uh, you know, headquartered in Germany. And... Um, there was a, a Polish guy that worked as an admin and uh, he used to be really interested in Bitcoin. Oh, so, yeah. um, so he used to like, you know, mine Bitcoin and he would talk about it. But apart from Bitcoin, his much other major idea was uh, starting a nuclear power plant in Russia with his, um, <laughs> with his brother. 
And so it was that. Why not? And like mining Bitcoin. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I, I read it, but, you know, I read the white paper, but I didn't really get into it. And then um, in 2015, I, I came across the Ethereum white paper. You know, a bunch of people that were kind of in trading, they were um, sharing it around and there was the pre-sale. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started to like really... Um, get into it there. And then once, um, you know, they released their software, you could play around with it. Uh, you know, I kind of, you know, wrote some smart contracts, like, uh, you know, there weren't any ERC twenties or things like that, but there were like the examples, uh, from the Ethereum website. And did you buy ETH in the, in the pre-sale? I didn't buy ETH in the pre-sale. I, I bought it, um, later, like late 2015. What do you remember? Um, like the first price you paid? I think it was it was like mid single digits. Yeah, um, I think I think the cheapest I ever got it was eight dollars. I remember, um, and then yeah. So, but but you're right. Like there was nothing. Yeah, there was nothing really to look at right at that point. Right, like there like Ethereum was live, but it's like there wasn't really a project or um, you know any. But that's why the DAO, I think, really grabbed everyone's attention because that was the really the first thing that that um a first big use case that I think that everyone got behind. It was the first big thing. And so I think the you know basically all the sort of co-founders and early people in Ethereum, they kind of learned a really important lesson, which is to not go all in and promote one single project. <laughs> so they learned that lesson like literally with the first Big project because uh, you know informally and like by taking part in it, almost uh, most of the people at the time they were promoting the project, and and so that's sort of why it got so big, right? Um, yeah. So I think they actually raised more than a hundred million dollars, but at the, by the time of the hack, it was uh, like fifty uh, something million dollars. Yeah. No, um, they, they closed. It wasn't it? I think it was 150 million when the the initial the DAO yeah. token sale ended, and then because Ether was going up in price, it when it was hacked, it was there was 250 million dollars worth of ETH in the DAO. Um, what I love is that I was thinking about this, um, and you know, like thinking about talking to you, and and it occurred to me, I really love the DAO because I think it really embodies the kind of community of Ethereum, where you know. Basically, this project was meant to help fund startups that wanted to build decentralized apps that would run on Ethereum. And everyone who was in that boat would need to raise money, right? But the idea that Christoph Jens and the guys at Slocket had, that you mentioned Slocket earlier, they, they were the ones who created the DAO. Um, they were like, well, we need money, but everyone needs money. So why don't we just kind of pool all our resources and then folks who buy in and, and receive DAO tokens in, in return, they can vote for the projects that they think are, are worthy. And it's, so it's like a lot more democratic than like a venture capital fund or, you know, trying to raise money uh, through, I don't know, you know, just a, mostly VCs, right? Um, so yeah. I, I love that that, I think right from the bat, off the bat, you know, it kind of like embodied the community uh, spirit of like, we're kind of like, we're all in this together that I think has always been an element of Ethereum that I really appreciate. Yeah, exactly. It's, we're all in this together. We don't know, need to know who we all are. 
right? Like we can be anywhere in the world from any country and our, you know, uh, online entity and what we bring concretely, that's all that's valued. Yeah. And those things, I think they're, um, really different and, I don't think they really existed anywhere else at the time. Like, I, I don't think those kind of values and experimentation, they really existed uh, elsewhere. So if you were like an idealistic person that wanted to try something different and see something else work out, this was like the one place you could do it. And um, so I think it, it just attracted a lot of really smart, uh, you know, idealistic and, uh, you know, people that were quite capable and uh, I think there was a lot of valuable things that came out of it. You know, one is, okay, <laughs> probably don't put $150 million in a single contract. Yeah. You know, let's try some different contracts. And um, I mean, I, I think, don't think solidity, know, solidity, that's the language that, that, that this is written in. I don't think it was even a year old. Um, yeah. And they had found a whole bunch of other bugs in the code. Um, and there was a call for a moratorium, like people wanted to like pause the DAO, but it just had too much momentum. Um, too much so momentum. yeah, there were a lot of red flags going in for sure. But I'd love to hear, so that Friday in June of 2016, like when did you, how did you learn about the hack and, and what, what did it feel like to have your money gone? Yeah, um, so I saw it in the Slack channel. So at the time, it, I think a lot of the communication was in the Slack channel. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, you know, uh, it was just very surprising because, um, because I was in high trading, like all the money is super locked down. Like you can never steal, uh, tower research money because it's all in the bank. It's like, you know, there's, uh, you know, custodians, there's clearing houses, like, uh, there's no way to actually steal the money. And so it's, Pretty shocking uh, for someone that's used to uh, banks um, for this to happen. And then probably for like most of the people that uh, where this was happening to, it's, it's a lot of like hunting around for information. Um, there was also a bunch of like misinformation and people posting like red herrings or like unrelated things. Mm-hmm. Um, it was moving really fast. So there was this like white hat group that was trying to um, rescue the money. I think because of like my experience in the, in the financial crisis, I was like, oh, wow, this is exciting. Like um, there's, you know, stuff going on. Like maybe my money has disappeared. That's okay. Like um, there's something like interesting happening. And, you know, I, I, I sort of wanted to get to the bottom of it and, um, you know, after that experience, it was just very clear that if there were going to be more smart contracts and more DAOs, then there are going to be like, there's going to be companies that um, help everybody to stay safe. And so after that experience, you know, I looked around and I said, okay, like there's really no companies that's, um, you know, keeping everyone safe. How do I start one? Mm-hmm. And so I started to, you know, talk to, I made a list of like 10 of my smartest friends and I just literally went to each one and talked to them and I asked them for like their smartest friends. And out of the list of 10 people, we end up getting, you know, seven of them. Uh, and 
we got some of like the really good professors from University of Waterloo. Um, we tried to prove out the idea. Um, and after, you know, we kind of proved it out and we had like uh, enough <laughs> smart people who all decided to give it a shot. Um, yeah. That's, you know, we, we started constant. So I'm going to, I'm going to shamelessly plug my book here out of the ether, but I go into great detail about all of this. And I, I also, like you, kind of wanted to know who did it. And I, part of the book yeah. is, is me trying to figure out who the ether thief was. And uh, it, it, I had some success. What I, what I learned, which I thought was really interesting, and I think got lost in a lot of the... Because it was just like you were saying, it was crazy. Like there was so much going on and so many storylines and information. Um, there were copycat uh, hacks as well, you know, and I think that people don't realize that there was the big hack on Friday where it was like $55 million was stolen. But then if you knew what you're doing, you could look at that contract and be like, Oh, this, the, here's the attack contract and I can just cut and paste this and run it myself. And some folks did that. And I think a couple of days later, like the, the next week, uh, a, a copycat attack happened and it, it, drained uh i can't remember it's, it's somewhere it's it's it was the second biggest drainage like dow hack uh, that that happened and um so in the course of my book i think that i think i identified the person who might have done that copycat attack but um the forensics at the time when i was doing the research for the book weren't weren't quite as good as they are now and so we couldn't backtrack as far as as to get to the original hacker um but that that was a really fun just part of the book and and I was curious w with your security background now like I've always felt that the hack uh was very elegant it was a two-staged attack where and I, I just I'd be curious to hear what you what you think of of the way that the hacker actually um did did it uh from a, from a security kind of point of view yeah, I think the um, I think the hacker. So the actual bug was really simple. It was you know you withdrew, and then before the system could update your balance, you withdraw again in the fallback function, and you keep withdrawing before the system could yeah. update your balance until just a quick just a quick note here. That bug was on line six 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 of the code that Christoph yeah. Chance wrote. So <laughs> can't make that shit up. <laughs> Um, so the bug itself was really simple. I think the, um, you know, um, the, the interesting thing about it is that it's always like really hard to launder the money from hacks. And this is something we still see today where, um, you know, a lot of hackers, they try to have smart contracts, but, uh, when they try to launder the money and like get it back into us dollars, they make a mistake. And um, I think for the DAO hacker, they actually did the same thing because, um, you know, they, uh, I think one, they actually talked to some, their friends about it. And, um, you know, I think today it's very likely that a DAO hacker is a guy named Toby, who was the CEO of 10X. Um, and I was, you know, I was friends with um, his co-founders at 10X. And, you know, they told me stories about Toby where it was like, uh, very clear that he was the DAO hacker. Um, but also when he laundered the money, um, you know, 
I think chain analysis, they were able to actually um, uh, trace back the, the money that he laundered back to uh, one of his accounts. Um, so this is kind of where a lot of hackers screw up. And um, even today, like this is often what happens. They, they have a big hack. They steal, you know, $100 million. They make a mistake. And then the, the project literally just reaches out to the person and um, basically the whole, you know, war room or the white hat group then uh, sort of forces them to return the money. Uh, and th that's sort of uh, um, one of the earliest cases here it's, has all those kind of signs. And, and yeah, the last sign I would say is um, before he did the hack, I think like a lot of people, he actually tried to well, while he's figuring it out, he left some trails there as well because, um, you know, Toby was writing a lot in the in the Slack channel and asking about various vulnerabilities for the DAO. And, you know, that's kind of another typical thing that happens. The hacker, um, you know, they go in, like, you know, for hacks today, you know, they'll go into the Discord and sometimes they're like, you know, pretty active in the Discord and might ask some questions. And on the day of the hack, they're like in the Discord to look at people's reactions. Uh, and it's like all these little things, you know, you can match up the person and it kind of gives them away. Um, so, yeah. you know, this is kind of the and like you mentioned, dilemma. Yeah, for sure. And this was, as you mentioned before, um, definitely a make or break moment in early Ethereum and then the, the contentious decision to hard fork and make it as though the DAO hack never happened. So to just kind of tie a bow on this story, you, you probably got your Ether back and then you probably got Ether Classic on top of it. So you probably made out better than you started with, right? Yeah, I would say um, a lot of people made out better than they started with. Um, but actually, maybe a third of the people that I know from that time you know, after they got, after the hard fork, they just, they sold their ether. Uh, and, you know, that was kind of their... Um, they had had enough. They had enough. <laughs> so <laughs> it's it's a make or break moment in that. I, I think this also happens in hacks today. Like, um, you know, I, I had a um, really good friend uh, and he, he, he was part of a big hack last year where... Um, you know, it was like a bridge that got hacked and he had most of his money on it. And, you know, after the hack, he didn't even like want to get, you know, restitution. He was just like done. And that's something where I, I think like, I really want to see less of that because, you know, the, the human um, toll on people is... Uh, is a lot and it's not something you're expecting when you're wanting to be part of a DAO or wanting to be like part of a DeFi project. Yeah. Um, so, you so know, tell me more these things about, definitely add yeah, up. Tell me more about Quantstamp and, and we've, we've kind of laid the groundwork that the DAO hack, you know, and your experience with it made you want to provide auditing and security services where there was, was really very little at that time. So how did you guys go about forming the, the company and, and getting it off the ground? Yeah, um, so 
when I started the company, I, I just, you know, tried to find some of my smartest friends. Um, and at the time, nobody was a um, smart contract expert or nobody, nobody was an auditing expert. So we actually had the benefit of um, approaching it, you know, as kind of uh, newcomers because, you know, we were also learning, okay, like how does Solidity work? What are all the different bugs? And there were very few projects to audit. So a lot of the projects that were started, um, they, they just only had white papers. They didn't have actual smart contracts. And so when we first started the company, um, we actually had also the benefit of being able to talk to a lot of these companies that were starting. And it would be you know, two people or like one person or three people. Um, and basically trying to help them uh, whatever ways we could. So, um, you know, when I started the company, I also started to angel invest in these companies. And now I've invested in something like more than 200 Web3 companies. Uh, and we, you know, we help a lot of these companies to think about how to build their first smart contracts. And basically for, I would say, the last six years, we've still been doing that, which is for a lot of people that are entering space, it's very hard for them to orient themselves. And so we just, you know, help kind of like free of charge and help people figure out, okay, like, what are the best templates to use that have been, you know, battle tested? And like, what are the best practices you can have? Um, yeah, I wish there was more of that because I think security still I think comes last in a lot of Web3 projects, if at all, right? And I think that's a yeah. huge mistake. I think security should be first. Um, are, do, are you finding that or what do you, where, where do you think we are with that? It's a lot better today. So, I mean, compared to like, you know, five or six years ago, um, but, you know, when people start their projects, their very first thing is like they want to get the company off the ground. And so... They're trying to raise money. They're trying to launch, launch the first version of their product and prove that they can get some users. So I feel like for the founders, they're always that's you know they're always under this like time crunch and trying to get a lot of users and trying to prove themselves. Um, you know, for like a lot of the first time founders, um, but because there's been this like history of um, you know, uh, careless hacks. Uh, I think people have gotten a lot better over time. Like when, when I first started the company, um, I actually like almost every single meeting, I had to explain why you had to get an audit for a smart contract. Because people thought that um, Ethereum was just secured by proof of work. They didn't understand that like... <laughs> uh, you can be secured by proof of work, but the uh, smart contracts can still have a bug. Yeah, so I spent to do. probably yeah the first two years explaining that on every other phone call. <laughs> and over time, people now they know okay, like smart contracts they can have bugs, like you know there can be hacks. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of a labor of love in that um, you're you know it's like this arms race in the beginning. The stakes are really low. It's really easy. It's like high frequency trading. You could you could be on the trading floor, 
and he had a guy that was like a football player and he could like um you know take up his space on the trading floor like that's that's your edge and then over time like it becomes harder so in the beginning we were auditing uh tokens erc20s they were really easy and then people invented nfts and then we started to audit some nft projects uh, and then DeFi started to take off. So we were, you know, auditing like MakerDAO, like Compound, uh, Curve, you know, many of the first DeFi projects. And then there were projects built on top of DeFi projects and then bridges and layer twos. And over time, it became, it, it, it's become a lot more complicated. Yeah. So the, the attack surfaces are just like expanding exponentially. The attack surface is expanding. It's, it's kind of very similar to, uh, you know, the evolution of the financial markets. Um, you know, every year it gets more, um, complicated. There's more like games within games in the blockchain space. Um, you know, that's, that, and so we got the benefit of basically starting when things were really easy. And then every year the, the difficulty yeah. ramps up. And I think today to start an auditing firm, it's, it's a very hard job because there's, there's so many different types of projects and uh, types of vulnerabilities. But, but now we have the experience to, yeah. to um, you know, keep up with it. So. I noticed you also spent some time... Um, uh, on the working with the Chamber of Digital Commerce, and I did, yeah, yeah, that's a that's a for those who don't know, it's a DC, uh, it's it's a lobbying group, right, for for digital yeah. assets. And um, I was curious, like, I don't think you're doing that anymore, but um, I would imagine you have pretty good contacts there still, like with, with all the talk of regulation and and you know, lawsuits uh, from the SEC and whatnot. Uh, where, where do you think crypto is in that uh, regulation discussion right now? Yeah, um, so the Chamber of Digital Commerce, it was co-founded by a guy called Matt Rozak, who is a really amazing uh, gentleman uh, and, you know, one of the like first big believers in Bitcoin. He actually, he bought a bunch of Bitcoin uh, in like the Silk Road auction. Um, so kind of like the roots of that go way back to the, you know, Bitcoin community actually. Uh, and they've done some really amazing work. Uh, the Chamber of Digital Commerce, I, I went with them to uh, Washington to talk with, you know, senators and like, um, people from, you know, the house. Um, what I realized about it is I think it's a, it's really a grind in that um, there's so much turnover in Washington. Uh, you know, the, the people that I talked to um, when I was the, the co-chair of the Smart Contract Alliance, you know, they're not in Washington anymore. Now it's a new, you know, I, I talked to them during the Trump era and then now it's, it's a whole new group of people, you know, now it's, yeah, that's like driven by Elizabeth Warren and, um, is, you know, the, the Democrats. So it's really like a relentless effort to communicate basic facts. Uh, and that's, that's, that's like pretty hard for me as a programmer, yeah. but really like, I think, 
the the main issue actually for regulation is the it's actually like the communication of the basic facts. You know, there's um, the, the people. You know, there's a lot of turnover, and they they're dealing with a ton of issues. You know, when someone is like voted in or they join, you know, they start their term as a senator or, or in the house. They're dealing with so many other issues apart from crypto, and uh, and they need to get reelected. So you're mostly talking with uh, people that have a very small attention span for this specific issue, and if it's not an issue for their the, the people the the specific group of people that they represent, then it's you're you're kind of talking to deaf ears. Yeah, and it's also to be honest, it's not. An issue that's easily understood, you know. Hard to understand. Yeah, it it's, takes. It's it similar takes time. to lobbying for hydrogen trade. <laughs> the, the level of difficulty imagine. might be harder. Yeah, 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 that's a great, great point. Um, and it's not the same at all. But I, it reminded me of like going through uh, as a crypto reporter at Bloomberg. You know, I would uh, often new editors would come in, and, and I'd work for somebody different, and then it's like the learning curve. You know, has to start all over again, and I have to teach them basically what I'm writing about. And uh, so, yeah, it, that can be frustrating uh, over yeah. time. The thing I would say is like, I always had a really positive experience. Like the people there are really nice and there, you know, there's a lot of people that are really willing to learn. There's some like, uh, you know, Tom Emmer and some other folks who are like really long running senators. Mm-hmm. And they you know, they, they like fully understand that, you know, they, they know everything inside and out. Um, so there, there's people like that. There's also another one um, that, you know, they, they wrote a bill. Uh, that, um, so there's some people that are, you know, really nice. And it's more like the system. There's a lot of turnover. Uh, so do you um, think, um, do you think that it, there'll be a, a, a sort of reasonable outcome? Or do you think the SEC is going to sort of continue to do what it does with like enforcement through regulate or uh, through regulation through enforcement actions that a lot of people are complaining about. Um, it seems like there's a little bit of movement in Congress now, but uh, it, it also seems like the SEC uh, is just kind of doing whatever it, it thinks is necessary. Yeah, um, I think pretty much all my friends in the Web3 industry and you know all the sort of good people, they, everyone has been complaining about this. Um, it's really hard to say. Maybe after the elections, things change. But um, I think my experience with it, just from some, you know, like more limited um, encounters, is it's these. I think it's actually pretty slow to change. So you know, maybe some of it will get decided in the courts and, you know, with Coinbase, you know, I think they stand a really good chance, but it's, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think it would change really quickly. You know, that's, that's not been the experience so far. So. Yeah. It keeps reminding me of like more in the traditional financial world when you probably remember this, like somebody will come up with an idea like, oh, there should be a high frequency tax or high frequency trading tax or, yeah. Like attacks on derivatives at the CME group, which you know they, uh, which you know could go to fund the CFTC, and whenever that would, would come up um, throughout the years, you know 
the CME folks would get all, you know, red faced and angry and say, well, we'll just go to London, you know, or, you know, screw you, America. And, but they never did, you know, because usually there was sort of a middle ground that was struck or, you know, the, the idea just kind of went away. So I, I keep thinking that that's sort of the situation we're in, but I don't, the thing that worries me is that the crypto industry as a whole is so new and, and is, is also quite new in the lobbying department in DC. I wonder if they have, they're not the CME group, you know, which employs thousands of people and brings in, you know, millions of dollars in, in revenue for, for Chicago every year. And they, like, like the New York Stock Exchange, think of that as, you know, when the New York Stock Exchange, like, um, you know, they've got a lot of, a, a lot of clout and a lot of like prestige behind them. And so the crypto, just by the nature of it, doesn't, you know, it's sort of supposed to be decentralized and it's supposed to be sort of individualistic. So uh, that, yeah. that's, that's the thing that kind of worries me a little bit. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, just like most of the friends that I know in the Web3 space, they're very ind individualistic people. And the last thing they want to do is go lobby in Washington. Yeah. And so it's like, it's almost like the vast majority of the, um, I would say like the really good idealistic people in the space, they, uh, they kind of like join the space to avoid these kind of centralization and, uh, you know, th this type of, uh, thing. And so that's, I think that's also playing against. Uh, crypto, you know, because having good lobbyists, having people who kind of like um, explain a really clear message to every incoming new group of people, like try to tie it to what they're like, the, what the main party message is and doing all these things is really valuable. Um, but it, it does require like people with that expertise. Uh, so yeah. Um, the thing I'm, I'm sort of hopeful uh, of is that like every single year that I've seen these new batches of companies, you know, every year there's a lot of new Web3 companies. And um, every year there's been like a dramatic improvement, I would say, in the quality of the companies. Uh, you know, everyone is building on top of each other. So... That's really what makes me really optimistic. It's yeah. like when I see the you know new companies people are starting and like cool stuff people are building. Um, it's like if I just think back to a couple of years ago, you know, we didn't have a lot of the things we have today, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and that sure. speed is really like you know. Yeah, that's exciting. the thing about this. Uh, nobody's stopping it. You know, like it's not slowing down for nothing, and uh, it's it's going to keep happening whether it's here or abroad. You know, that's that's to be determined. But um, the, this is, yeah, one kind of intrinsic fact in in crypto and Web three is that it, it doesn't slow down for anything. Um, but Richard, this has been a really fascinating conversation. Thank you for all the time and, and sharing your experience um, with me. Why don't you tell folks how they can uh, get more information about Quantstamp and, and how they can reach out to you? Yeah, um, you know, really appreciate the call, Matt. And uh, yeah, uh, I think for more information about Quantstamp, um, you can follow us at you know at Quantstamp on Twitter. 
And we do a really good like monthly hacks roundup. And we also try to like um, explain a lot of things on our Twitter, you know, in threads. So to learn more, um, I think that's the best method and uh, really appreciate it. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much again, Richard. Really, uh, really enjoyed speaking with you today. Yeah. Awesome. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. And don't forget to rate and follow this show on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Decent People is a production of Decentral Media. It is produced by Matt Bogart with music by Brian Duncan and Kareem Imes. Mm-hmm.